Hear now the word of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord, would you open our eyes to your Son, Emmanuel, God with us. Would you bless us? Would you help us? Would you carry us and make us see what we perhaps do not or cannot today. For those believing, would you give us a greater share in your Son, using your word to draw us closer to you. For those who do not believe, Lord, would you use the scripture to awaken them to new life? We ask you to do this through your Holy Spirit, in your Son's name. Amen. You may be seated. About 1,700 years ago, there was a bishop from Alexandria, Egypt. That bishop's name was Athanasius. Athanasius wrote a book, and the book was called On the Incarnation of the Word of God. And he, when he wrote the book, he intended the book to be sort of a, a defense of the full deity of Jesus. Uh, and the reason was, of course, there were these folks called Arians. We've talked about the Arians before in the last few weeks And one of the prime teachings of the Arians was they said that Jesus was a created being. They denied that Jesus was God. And so what Athanasius saw and what he wrote was this very important book defending these truths of Scripture. It is, in my mind, at least one of those books that is 1,700 years old. And yet, if you read it, it does not feel like an old book. If you've ever read Augustine's Confessions, it's kind of like that. It's, it, it feels like it's still relevant today. And the interesting thing about reading on the incarnation of the Word is that you're reading this book that's very much focused on this issue, this question, what happened at the incarnation? What happened when Jesus came to live among us? And so in a sense, it's focused on that. But in another sense, it's a book that is all about the Christian message. It is about Christ's life. It is about his death. It is about his resurrection. And it ends up being, after you finish this book, you have read a fully orbed expression of biblical truth that is still evergreen. It's still something you can read in 2019, and it feels completely relevant. And, uh, you know, if I had to, if someone, you know, forced me to pick an issue, that, that you as a congregation would know thoroughly and know well and focus on. I wouldn't want to pick one thing, but if I was forced to pick one thing, I think I might possibly cheat by picking the incarnation of the Word of God. Because when you understand and when you start to grasp the incarnation, you start to understand what happened when he came to live on earth. You start to understand why he came to live on earth. And as soon as you start to answer those questions, you understand why did Jesus need a human nature? 
You, you start to understand that God is angry at sin and there is a need for a sacrifice to bring us forgiveness. And so what you start with is the incarnation. What you end with is a fully orbed picture of the Christian gospel. And all of these truths are so connected that you end up with a tapestry of the Christian life and what Christian doctrine is all about. So in other words, all of Christian doctrine hangs on how we understand a passage like the one we read this morning. A passage like this that teaches the incarnation. And so remember where we are. If you look with your eyes at the passage, I don't know if you have your Bible open, but you see we started in verse 1. Here we end with verse 18. And this is the end of John's prologue. After this, we actually begin the narrative of the story. We actually begin to, instead of asking the question, who is Jesus? We start to ask the question, what did Jesus do? And so today is really the last piece of John's prologue. He began by telling us that Jesus is the word, that Jesus is God, that he is the son is distinct from the father. He tells us that we'll never believe in Jesus unless God does something miraculous in our own heart. And this morning, John wraps up this very theological introduction to Jesus by telling us finally that the word didn't just create, but he became flesh. And John talks about his mission, why he became flesh and what he tells us about him and about ourselves. Next week, we start the narrative portion of John's gospel. But for this morning, as we close out the prologue, let's look closely at four things that I am convinced John wants us to know about Christ and why he entered into this world. And what I'm going to argue is that Jesus came as the incarnate one. He came as the glorious one. He came as the full one. And he came as the gracious one. So this is a four-point sermon instead of a three-point sermon this morning. Trying to mix things up, get crazy today. And so let's, let's just begin immediately with the first point, which is that Jesus appears in our passage as the incarnate one. Now we talk about the incarnation intentionally towards the end of the year as we start drawing near to the Christmas season. But one of the things we also need to know is the incarnation does not belong to the Christmas season. The incarnation is something that is valid and legitimate and important year round. When we talk about incarnation, I want you to think of it. I'm going to make up a different word. Maybe you're not familiar with incarnation. I'm going to use another word, enfleshment. Enfleshment. He took on flesh. So, so listen to these words. Listen to the way that John puts it. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became flesh. Now think of that word flesh. Flesh is such a humble word. Flesh is a very lowly word. Um, if he had said he became man, there's almost a dignity to it, right? There's a dignity to being a man, being a human. <laughs> but flesh is such a low word. It's such a almost gross word. Think of, think of Isaiah 40, verse 6. Isaiah says, all flesh is grass and its beauty like the flower of the field. All flesh is grass. This is the word that John decides to use. And he says, the word became it. He became flesh. He became grass. So remember, the word is a person. He's one of the persons of the Trinity. And so John says before, he was not flesh. 
When the world was created, he was not flesh. Uh, when Moses saw the burning bush, he was not flesh. When Israel was in, when Judah was carried off to Babylon, he was not flesh. And then, see, he was not body. He had no physical aspect to him at all. And then it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he wasn't among us before. He was not physically with us before. And in the incarnation, that changed. He existed only with a divine nature before. But in the incarnation, the fullness of deity now dwells in a local place, in a physical location in Palestine. In a specific time and in a specific place. That doesn't mean that the divine nature stopped being the divine nature. It doesn't mean that he ceased being the all-knowing, all-powerful God. Uh, The universe was still spinning. Gravity was still in effect. Jesus was still able to say in John chapter 5, my father is still working. So the incarnation never means that Jesus ceases to be God. What it means is that he also becomes man. He does it by addition. He becomes a new kind of of being the God-man, something we have never seen before and haven't ever seen since. And so he becomes man by addition, not by subtraction. Um, It is not as though he becomes a man and ceases to be God. He loses nothing, but he gains a human nature. Before creation, he had one nature. He had a divine nature. And now at the incarnation, he has two natures, divine and human, and now he has two wills. He has a divine will and he has a human will, and yet those natures never intermingle with each other. They don't bleed into each other. They don't start to become the other. They remain distinct. He always remains God and distinctly as God, and the divine nature is not changed even by the incarnation. And yet he always remains a man. He isn't a superman. He isn't a different kind of man. He always is and incidentally always will be a man. He remains one person. Now, he is a person with two natures, but not two persons. The two natures are held together in this one person by something very mysterious that we can't fully explain. It's called the hypostatic union. In theology, we have all kinds of fancy terms for the things that we don't understand. If we give it a name, it feels less mysterious. We call it the hypostatic union. Now, it could be that you're not following me. (laughs) That's okay. Um, I I do hope, in a sense, after hearing these things, that your head is spinning at least a little bit. If it's not spinning, it means I explained it really well. And if your head is spinning, then it kind of means that you heard it right. Because what we've just said is one of the most extraordinary things that have ever happened in all of human history. And God actually did it. So Christ is set, us, set before us this morning as the incarnate one. God himself living among us, breathing among us, walking among us. Second, Jesus appears in our passage as the glorious one. Look at what John does in verse 14. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you had seen Jesus walking down the streets of Palestine, he would have looked like everyone else. He would have just appeared to you as an ordinary man. However, 
If you spoke with him, if you, if you saw his works, if you saw his love, if you heard his teaching, and if you had the eyes to see, you would have seen his glory. You wouldn't have seen it if you looked at his body, at his figure. You wouldn't have seen it. You would have seen it, though, once you got to know him. There's one writer who says, The glory of Christ could have been seen by all but it was unknown to most because of their blindness. So what he's saying is when people would look at Jesus and not know who he was, it wasn't his fault. It was their fault. And when we look at Jesus and we don't see him for who he is, the problem is with us. The fault is with us. The fault isn't with God, and it certainly isn't with Jesus. So think about this. The majesty of God is clothed in flesh. He's, he's hidden in a sense under the flesh of Christ, and, and some, like John, saw the glory that others didn't see. And I think glory is a word we use, and we maybe don't think a lot about what we mean by it. We, glory in the Old Testament, the word that gets translated as glory, is the word kavod, and the word kavod means heaviness. If you were just to read the word in Hebrew and to translate it into English, our Bibles wouldn't say glory, it would just say heaviness, the heaviness of God. And I love the idea that God's glory is his heaviness. There's something about it that is perfect and mysterious all at once. This idea of godness, this idea that that God is great and weighty, that he's a, a glorious being that we cannot conceive anyone greater than. Something about that word glory gets that across, even in an imperfect way. And what kind of glory did John see? Well, John says it was glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in other words, this is a unique glory. It's a glory that no one else has. It's a glory that's dissimilar from any other glory. Uh, You would have perhaps, if you lived during this time, heard tell of the glory of Caesar or the glory of the previous kings of Israel. Certainly in Israel, they would have looked at King David as a glorious king who came before. And yet this is a glory that no one has in comparison. And we'll talk about the grace in a moment, but John says the glory of Jesus that we saw was in fact that he was real to us and he shows himself to us truly and what, he, and what we saw was graciousness through and through graciousness through and through. Have you ever had um, this experience where you really like someone, you really respect someone, but after a while you maybe spend some time with them (laughs) and things start to change if you are around them very much. Um, You know, you think to yourself, you know, the more I'm around this person, the less I respect them. The more I'm around this person, the less I like this person. Um, That's sort of the way all people are. Uh, you know, that's what's so great about being newlyweds. At once you get to know each other and spend time around each other. And you get to discover that sometimes you don't like each other. And yet you also get to discover what it means to still love each other, even if you don't like each other very much, which does happen. And um, the thing about living with Jesus is John lived with Jesus he saw Jesus. He saw him speak honestly and, and frankly. He saw Jesus And after years and years with this man, he says, I spent four years with this guy and he never wavered. He was the real deal. He always was the son of God. He had no skeletons in his closet. He had no surprises for us. He was just he was just always Jesus. 
And the more we got to know him, the more we saw his glory. And maybe everyone didn't see his glory. Maybe they rejected him, but, but we did see his glory. His glory was real. His glory is real. That's what John wants to get across to us, that Jesus had a unique kind of glory. Third, Jesus appears in our passage as the full one. I like this. This is one of my favorite things in the Bible. In verse 14, he says Jesus was full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, he says even more. It's almost like he, he hasn't had his say about who Jesus really is. Listen to what he says in verse 16. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Where does his grace upon grace come from? It comes from his fullness. And one of my favorite teachings about God in the Bible is the teaching of the fullness of God. The fullness of God. In, in Psalm 1611, David is praising God and, and he says this. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hands are pleasures forevermore. There is fullness of joy. So David is not saying that God has a lot of stuff. He is not saying that he's full in the same way that you might be full after a meal. He is not saying that God has needs that must be satisfied. What he is saying is God is so much. He has so much within himself. He is missing nothing in himself. There is no emptiness in God. There is no need in God. There is no want in God. There is no aspect of himself that needs to be satisfied. And here's why this matters to me. This is why this teaching speaks to me, because the longer I live, the more convinced I am that I can never entertain myself enough, that I can never read enough books, that I can never hear enough good music, that I can never have enough comforts to ever really be satisfied. I think Muddy Waters had that song, I ain't never been satisfied. Well... We were made to be endless consumers of God. And so we have that hunger, that proper hunger. But then after the fall, what happens? We still have the hunger. And so we consume and we consume. But we look everywhere else that we possibly can, except for the place that we were made to find that satisfaction. There is no thing on earth that will satisfy you. I quote St. Augustine endlessly. I hope, I'm about, I hope you know what quote I'm about to give. But if you don't know it and you haven't heard it enough, I'm going to tell you again. Because Augustine reminds us exactly why it is that we are so hungry. He says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You see, we were made to love God who is absolutely full, who never runs out of joy, never is drained of energy, is never missing glory, never lacking goodness. He is always full. He says that's where we're supposed to go. That's why all this stuff doesn't satisfy. In Ephesians 3.19, Paul prays for believers. He prays that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. So this fullness isn't just over there where we look at it, we admire it, we wish that there was something more. But Paul says, this is yours when you're united to Christ by faith. Jesus is the full one and he shares that fullness with us. Fourth, Jesus appears in our passage 
as the gracious one. Let's read verse 17 and then sort of pull apart what I think John is saying. He says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So right up, right up front, what does he do here? He sets up a contrast. Right? On the one side, he sets up Moses. And then especially he sets up the law that God gave through him. And that would be the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And Deuteronomy. And then on the other side, you have Moses over here with, his, with the law. And then over here, you have Jesus. So Moses gave us law. What does Jesus give? He gives us grace and truth. Now, sometimes people look at a passage like this and they say, ah, God is setting the law against God. He's setting, it, setting the law against grace. There's, there, he, in other words, they see these as opposites of, of each other. And you can understand sometimes why there are biblical interpreters who come to conclusions like this. You have a verse like Galatians 3, 10 to 11. It tells us we are no longer under law, but under grace. And that passage seems to say something like, well, then that means law bad, grace good. Does that mean that law and grace are enemies, though? Well, they are enemies if you think of them as a way of being saved. If you think that Moses' law has something in it, that you're going to find peace, you're going to find rest in God. If you just keep those laws, then yes, they are against each other. Law and grace don't go together if you're looking to the law to find salvation. So if you're the kind of person who wants to answer and say, well, I have kept all the Ten Commandments from my youth. What more is there to do? Well, it means we're blind to ourselves and we don't realize we've broken these commandments and we've broken all ten of them. And furthermore, it's shown us that we don't know where salvation comes from. Because the law can't give spiritual life. If we're spiritually dead, we're not going to find the life that we need over here. We're only going to find it in what John tells us this morning, in Jesus. But the law can point us to where life is. The law over here speaks of Jesus. Jesus is present throughout the law. The law is constantly showing us that we need Jesus. And the law is telling us how we can live and how we can please God once we have been rescued by Jesus. So it's not as though all of this just goes poof in smoke or something like that once Christ arrives. No, what Christ does is he says, I'm going to teach you how to use this the right way now. And so they're not enemies with each other. Listen exactly to what John says. He says, for the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So he's not saying the law has no grace in it. Because if John was saying that there's no grace in the law of Moses, he'd be saying that there's no truth in the law of Moses either. You don't want to derive that conclusion. (laughs) That's a bad conclusion. Um, He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, we usually don't think of the law as being gracious. I think if you think much about the Ten Commandments, you think of it as something that makes you feel condemned. It makes you feel guilty. And the law could never save us to keep every jot and tittle. But we shouldn't miss that there is so much grace in the Old Testament scriptures, especially in the law of Moses. Now, I'm not being comprehensive here, um, but the law is gracious in a few ways. I want to give you a few examples of the graciousness of the law. It's gracious in the sense that it shows us what we're like. It shows us what we're like. It's like a mirror. Um, 
I think uh, a couple months ago, I was flying, and I went into the, uh, the, the little tiny bathroom on the plane, and thankfully they had like a, they had a mirror there that you could actually look into. And when I looked into the mirror, I said, oh my goodness, look at that giant piece of something stuck in my teeth. And I was so glad that the, the mirror existed. So the mirror is a good thing. It can really, really save your neck in a pinch, keep you from a lot of embarrassment and other things. But, but there it is. The law functions like a mirror. It shows you what you're like. Isn't that kind of God to give you something to show you what you're really like? Because otherwise you would walk around with that stuff in your teeth. The law is gracious because it tells us what pleases God. You know, God didn't owe the Jewish people any revelation of himself at all. He didn't owe them a copy of the law. He didn't owe them the Ten Commandments. He didn't owe them the scriptures. He didn't have to speak to them. He could have left them in darkness. He could have left them guessing. And yet he was so gracious that he said, I'm going to tell these specific people what I'm like and what pleases me. Isn't it good of God. Isn't it gracious of God to tell them what he's really like? He didn't tell, tell the other nations who he was like. The Canaanites didn't know what he was like. All they did was they guessed and they felt around. The law was gracious in the sense that the whole sum and substance of it was pointing forward to a savior who would save his people from their sins. So they knew they should look for a rescuer because Jesus said in all the law and the prophets, it speaks of me. In Luke 24, the law is gracious in the sense that God used it to institute covenant signs with promises and blessings that looked forward. You know, they had circumcision. Abraham, by faith, circumcised his children. And we have baptism now that pictures the same thing, that that the covenant is for ourselves and for our children. Calvin says that if you separate the law from Christ, nothing remains in it except empty spaces. I really like that he says that. If you separate the law from Christ, all that's left is empty spaces. And that's why Colossians 2.17 says that the law is the shadow, but the substance is Christ. So John, John isn't saying that the law isn't gracious. He's not saying that it isn't truthful. But what is he saying? In essence, he's saying, yes, Jewish people love and esteem Moses. But Moses can only do so much. Moses can show you yourself. He can show you your own sin uh, and his law can show you how a redeemed person is supposed to live, but it cannot save you. Even Moses has his limits as great as he might be. Don't ask a car to fly. Don't ask the law of Moses to save you, right? The law just wasn't made for that. Moses is the car that takes you to the plane that does fly. See, all Moses did was show us what pleases God, but he pointed to another. And so here's the balance. There are churches where the Old Testament is never preached or taught. And it goes back to theological commitment that the law is bad, the New Testament is good. I was just talking to a student this week at Bellhaven. They said that their church, they only preached out of the Old Testament. And I I didn't know that those kind of churches existed. He said, I've only ever heard sermons out of the Old Testament my entire life. And then there are many who say, well, the law of God in Scripture, it doesn't even matter today, right? It's, it's antiquated. It can't help us now because we're not under the law. We're under grace. Sure. But that just means we don't look to the law to save us. But what about how to live once we're saved? You see, the law of God doesn't just point us to Jesus. It tells us how to live for Jesus. Grace came through Jesus because without him, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without him, there is no salvation. And the Bible tells us Jesus has done what the law could never do. 
He is the gracious one. He came to show us God. He came to make God known to us. So these are the four things that it tells us, our passage tells us about Jesus. I want to just give you three quick applications. The first is thank God for the incarnation. I know we usually wait till Christmas to thank God for the incarnation, but we should not wait until Christmas to thank God for the incarnation. The incarnation is needed every Sunday when we meet. It's just as important as the resurrection. It's just as important as the rest of Christian teaching. He became flesh and he dwelt among us. And if you ask the question why, the answer is right here, because grace came through Jesus Christ. There is no grace that is in your life that did not come through Jesus. There is no grace through him unless he becomes flesh and unless he dwells among us and unless he lives among us. And so thank God for the incarnation. That's an application. Thank God. You can do that. Second, be willing to be needy and empty. Be willing to be needy and empty. See, John tells us, he says, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. So John is inviting us to not be full. He is inviting us to not be full. Instead, he is inviting us to cling to the one who is full. One of the things that that we see in the world around us is this constant message of teaching people that you already have enough, you already are enough, you're good enough, you're smart enough, everything about you is already great. You don't need anything. And that is a message that is therapeutic. It's a message that if you believe it, it makes you feel better for a while. But in the end, it still comes up empty if it's not true. And in the coming of Christ, God is thunderously declaring to you and me, you are not enough You are empty, you are shallow, you need my son who is all life and all joy and all satisfaction that you could possibly ever need. And so one of the applications of the fullness of God is we need to be willing to admit that we are needy and that we are empty. We've got to do that. Because if we stubbornly refuse, then we won't receive the fullness of what God has for us. Third, make sure your purpose lines up with Christ's purpose. You know, Jesus entered this world. He experienced his suffering so that he could rescue his people from sin and give you grace. There was a plan and a purpose in his coming and in his arriving. And so here's what happens, though. This is what can happen in the Christian life. If you neglect church, if you neglect the sacraments, if you make God's priorities low priorities for you, you are not living in keeping with the purpose of the incarnation. Your priorities aren't lining up with God's priorities. And then in which case you've missed the whole reason why Jesus came. Fourth, make sure you delight in God's law and don't denigrate it. Um, Jesus came to please God and he did it by keeping the law. When When we delight in God's law, we don't do it so that we can be saved. We do it because we have been saved. We do it responsively. And being a saved person means following the example of Jesus and, yes, keeping God's moral law and living to please him now. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So part of what makes the Son so gracious is that John says he took the God we cannot see and he made him known to us in the greatest and fullest way possible. And so in in Christ, we receive the forgiveness and salvation the law couldn't give us. 
I hope when you read the Old Testament, I hope when you read the Ten Commandments, that you do feel a sense of helplessness. I hope that you do, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you do feel that tinge of despair that we are meant to see. And then at the very same moment that you feel that tinge of anxiety over your own inability to keep it, I hope you look over at Christ and you say, he kept all ten and he never broke them once. He only ever pleased the Father. He only ever lived for the Father. So don't just live in despair of yourself, but live in in, in delight and joy and excitement when you set your eyes on the Son. That's the plan. The plan is not for you to feel like you're in despair. The plan is to despair of yourself and to look to the one who has the fullness of all life and joy and purpose and meaning in himself. That's always been the plan of the law. And so as we read this book, as we look at the book of John, as we get to know Jesus better, we're getting to know God in a way that was impossible without the incarnation. This is new material here. Uh, this this God-man that we are going to spend virtually the next year or so reading about, Lord willing, is the only way to know God. You won't improve on what we're about to see. You might be able to improve on the delivery. You might be able to improve on, on the preaching. But you cannot improve on the actual content that we are going to be covering. And you can never improve on Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you sent your Son into the world to become one of us. And in so doing, you not only showed us Him, but you showed us yourself. We ask you to bless each and every person here. Lord, grant us faith in you. Help us to set our eyes on you and love you, O God. May there not be anybody in this room who could honestly say, I do not know Jesus and I do not love him, O God. Would you make us a people who set our eyes on Christ, that we would come to you through your Son who entered this world so that we might know you. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.